Hello and welcome to episode two of the Oxfordshire Teacher Training Podcast with me, Matthew Coatsworth, and my guest today, Tom Bolter. We're going to explore some of the issues raised in a new book from ResearchEd, their guide to education myths and evidence-informed guide for teachers. So, welcome Tom. Thank you. And uh, perhaps before we start uh, getting into the meat of that, um, maybe just give us a little bit of a background as to... uh, your connection maybe with the skit, um, but also what you're doing at the moment. Okay, so um, I've been a, an English teacher for 20 years. I was a English teacher, head of English, uh, assistant head, deputy head at, at Charwell. Um, and now we're in the incredibly privileged position of being the director of education for the secondary phase of the RLT, um, which means I'm able to go across schools, uh, visit our secondary schools, uh, work with head teachers, senior teams, um, and teachers, uh, all focused on sort of uh, helping people to raise their quality of education, which is just a fabulous, uh, fabulous way to spend my time. Fantastic. <coughs> so that's the River Learning Trust for those of you who don't know uh, yeah. the RLT, um, which is a multi-academy trust in Oxfordshire, um, and the Skitty is part of the River Learning Trust as well. Yeah, and um, the Skit I've been. I mean, I do various bits of training for the Skit, which I really enjoy. Yeah. Um, I've been a a visiting tutor and that sort of thing. Brilliant, so. fantastic. Now, um, as, as I said earlier, the, um, the, the book that we're going to be thinking a little bit about, um, or to at least uh, provoke some of the discussion we're going to have, um, it's been put together by Research Ed, and I know that you've, uh, you've been involved with Research Ed recently and you've got a, another project with them coming up quite mm-hmm. soon. Yes, yeah, so I, I mean, I've spoken at the Research Ed National Conference. I've, I've attended uh, various over the years. Um, I'm speaking one in a, in a few weeks. Uh, I mean, it's a really fascinating uh, institution as it's turning out to be now. I suppose for me, I I think things started to change really in about 2011, 2012. Um, there was an enormous influence of, of social media actually. Yeah. Um, that, that, and that's when I first went on uh, Twitter. And provided this sort of uh, environment which didn't exist previously where, where teachers could to talk to each other and could uh, sort of critique ideas and um, and and uh, promote stuff and, and reject stuff it was really really exciting I mean, you get a lot of sort of bickering on there as well but uh, but on the whole it's, it's, it's been the best sort of CPD uh, form that I've come across and I think it, it stemmed out of that so you, yeah, this relatively small scale movement initially yeah. but now it's massive I went to Absolutely. the national conference it's yes. just incredible yeah no, it's a very very exciting thing so mm. um, if you haven't come across Research Ed um, you can have a look on their website uh, www.researched.org.uk and you can find out about the many events they hold all over the world um, perhaps don't try to go to your head teachers and your schools and ask for the ones in Dubai at this mm. stage but um, there are plenty going on and uh, they also do a quarterly magazine with lots of really mm. interesting things that come from there. And as Tom says, they are very, very vocal on Twitter and uh, are one of many fantastic educational s- sources who retweet and share things uh, on a almost minute by minute basis as we go through. So this book, uh, they've, they've called uh, The Guide to Education Myths. Um, so Tom, I'm interested to find out from you what, what you think about this, this term education myths and uh, What's it all about? Yeah, well, I mean, it does. I do sort of recognise the, the idea that education myths um, exist, and for me, I suppose it's those ideas uh, about teaching, about education, that have just become 
sort of orthodox that, that people just do um, as if they're sort of common sense or as if they're they're just the sensible way to do things and therefore they become sort of unquestioned um, so I, was, I think I was first exposed to the idea in about 2013-14 when uh, Daisy Christodoulou wrote uh, the absolutely well it absolutely blew my mind that but um, Seven Myths about education I think I mean she's an English teacher I, I was an English teacher and she just challenged some really sort of fundamental things that I had never questioned um, and it made me realise how much of what I was doing wasn't based on a great sort of sense of intentionality you know I'm doing this for this reason and I'm confident it's, 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 it's going to get that result uh, but was just doing what, what we'd always done so for me examples would be um, the idea that um, children learn things better if they work them out for themselves um, which was pretty commonly uh, expressed at the time. Yes, if you recognise that, I certainly that, remember it myself. From, yeah, from time. and listen, th there's probably some con there's probably some times, some contexts, some activities when that may be the case. You know, and dismiss that out of hand. I think if you if you've got people who have got a decent level of expertise about something and they they work something out, it, that's probably right. But it doesn't work well for novices. And I think the my uh, sort of acceptance of that myth um, led to some pretty disastrous approaches to try and explain things because uh, the, the idea of elicitation I don't know if that's familiar with mm. you Matthew where you would rather than teaching directly you'd be asking children what they thought about an issue you know as a, as a way to introduce it to them I remember for example um, teaching I needed to teach some students about apartheid in South Africa in order to understand the poem that we were reading and had you, had you asked me with this particular class like what, what do you think these kids are going to know about apartheid I would have said not much really I mean, they were relatively sort of weak class I would have very little confidence that they'd be able to start talking with confidence about it and so what did I do I put them into groups and arranged a discussion between themselves <laughs> What do you know about apartheid? <laughs> Even though I already knew they didn't yes. know that, yeah. and yet it still seemed like the right thing to do. Yeah. Now, why was I doing that? Be because, and of course, the the effect is, it makes everything incredibly slow. Uh, it makes everything really unclear because you might have a kid who might have some idea about what apartheid is, and all these sort of misconceptions flying around, um, and it leads to these incredibly cringy, socially awkward discussions with your yes. class where. They're saying, right, so what did you got what did you guys think apartheid was? And they come up with something which is not not right. At which point, of course, the other myth is that you can't ever tell a child that you're wrong. So at that point you're saying, Well, yeah, almost, I see what you <laughs> yeah, mean. Yeah. Can anyone build on that sort yes. of thing? Uh, whereas of course the tragedy of that is that I could have and what I would do now, I'd prepare in that in that example, I don't know, ten minutes, really clear instruction, explanation. I'd get a map up, I'd get a few stories, you know, you might, if, depending on the extent to which you needed them to really go deeply into that, uh, into that knowledge. And that way of teaching, I've since discovered, <laughs> is profoundly interesting and satisfying a way to teach. I think the kids enjoy it so much more. Interesting point, and I think you're probably right. I think it's one of the points that I think we'll come back to again and again uh, whilst we're talking this afternoon is 
the point that if you're a real expert teacher uh, and you know what you're doing, uh, you can make anything work really, really well. Mm. But as you say, um, if you're a novice, uh, it's a very different matter. You, mm. you have to think about that. So um, with our podcast casts, thinking very much about uh, the role of the mentors in our, yeah. in, in our skit and, um, and how they can best support our associate teachers to be great, great teachers of the future. Um, one of the things that um, comes up in the research ed book uh, is a chapter by Mark Enser. And in that, he talks about something which he describes as, as a cargo cult practice. Now, I wouldn't expect anyone to know what a cargo cult practice was. So I'm just going to read a tiny little bit from, uh, from the book here just to um, give some background on here. So the phenomenon of the cargo cult was first observed on some of the islands of the South Pacific. The islanders here wanted to attract the goods they'd seen arrive by planes brought over by Europeans and Americans. And a religion grew up on those islands around rituals designed to attract the wealth back to the islands. And the people built airstrips and planes from trees and made the sound of the planes they associated with the arrival of the cargo. The underlying reasons for the arrival of the cargo were gone though, and all that remained were their superficial structures, doomed to failure. So I think what um, Mark is trying to explain here uh, in this is that idea that you can be doing a particular thing but if you've lost the actual reason for doing it in the first place um, it can potentially be uh, you know a complete disaster I and mean, he describes it as doomed to failure so that idea of a, of a carousel task mm. is that something that you uh, have done in the past <laughs> oh yeah many many yes. times uh, yeah and I wouldn't do it I wouldn't do it again or I would do yeah. it with extreme caution uh, these yes. days. So, what, what, why, why do you say you do it with caution? What, what, what can you remember about doing, say, something like a well, cancer? Okay, so um, it would be it would go back to the idea of what's the point of doing it. You mm. know, what is your intent? What's the intentionality behind that choice of approach? Now, I mean, even now, as you kind of um, analyse it, uh, so many years later, it's hard to to get to the root of that. I think, in my mind, there were some sort of vaguely half-formed ideas about engagement uh, that the kids might be more engaged if they're I don't know moving around or in groups or something like that I think there were some <clears throat> profoundly wrong ideas about efficiency that you might get kids to become experts in these different areas and then they'd make each other into experts so yeah I don't think I had strong enough rationale for achieving the the aim um, but it, to be fair I think back then too often in lessons because we didn't have a strong enough sense of uh, of curriculum because we didn't have a curriculum that's specific mm. enough and probably different in maths Matthew but for us you know we were all into sort of skills development and that sort of thing because we were vague in, in intention and purpose uh, it didn't really matter that we had inefficient activities you know and whereas now I'd be much happier and much because I'd have a very very clear sense of what I want the kids to learn in this lesson, and what's the best way, the most efficient way to teach them that. Absolutely. Uh, and so obviously, sometimes if you're doing something, uh, you need to do it in a particular order, and that order can't change. And if you're doing a carousel, exactly. Yeah. yeah. If you're introducing, I mean, he makes a really good point yes. in the book, doesn't he? Yeah. Right. If you've got six groups. Yes. Okay. So maybe another reason you might do a carousel is if it gives you time as a teacher with individual, with smaller groups of kids. Yeah. But he makes the point if you've got six groups then you can give them sort of 10 minutes maximum each in an hour lesson when you wouldn't even get that would you uh, and so that you get kids with 50 50 um, minutes where they're not getting any attention it doesn't make a lot of sense now listen 
I think in some some contexts, it, it can be, you know, it can be the right thing to do. I can think of some A level classes that have responded really well to that mm. style of teaching. Um, but as I said, I would do it with caution these days. Absolutely, mm. and I think you know, and again, we'll come back to this point again and again. I'm sure uh, if you've thought about the intention behind it mm. and you can make it work, then it could well be a really effective yeah. approach there. And there might be a case of. You know, um, if you've got a class that is incredibly, I don't know, uh, sort of well behaved and and um, able to manage their own attention, because of course the problem with carousels is that you're asking so much of uh, particularly young kids to yeah. manage their their social world. I mean, adolescence is that hyper social environment. Mm. I've had a brilliant uh, lesson observation through that through the camera once. When I was, uh, this is when I was an assistant head yes. through Iris, yes. yeah, which was, was working on that occasion. Yes. This was in about yes. 2010 or something, 2011. And uh, I did a group work, um, and I had, uh, for me, when I was going around talking to all these different groups, the ones that I was talking to at that time were pretty engaged. They were giving me good answers, mm. and, it, and it was great, right? Yeah. So everywhere within like a kind of meter squared of me yes. was fine. So I reached yes. the end of this and think, oh, that's pretty good. Yes. And what I didn't realise is that, of course, there's a moment my back's turned, or I'm working with a particular group yeah. and therefore not with others. You know, I'm giving the uh, kids the, the choice of do you want to engage in your hypersocial world or do you want to carry on working on advice and men or whatever? And, and, the level of engagement I got was really low. Yeah, uh, and I didn't even know. And it's it's a it's a really common thing. Certainly, I, I've I've uh, I've experienced it both as mm. a teacher and as an observer as well. Um, almost as if the, the room is is in darkness, and then there's just that spotlight right. where the teacher is as they're moving their way around, um, or if they're staying put, and people are moving into that that spotlight for them to see what's what's going on there. That's exactly. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so one of the things in in this particular chapter of the book that uh, Mark talks about so he he talks about that idea of an optimal order for information to be uh, presented yeah. and he also talks about um, making sure that uh, students are able to actually uh, retain all the information in their working memory that they're going to need yeah. in order to get round um, he talks a little bit about um, time being lost moving around oh, yeah. and um, and then of course You've got the, uh, the the challenge at the end when everyone's coming back to share what they do. That, uh, as you mentioned with your apartheid example, um, errors and misconceptions. Yeah. Now, you can see that the the, the carousel idea has you know so many many things that maybe superficially seem like a fantastic idea to get mm. what's done, but actually, if all it's doing is cementing in misconceptions all the way through, exactly, a real a real challenge. And, and, it, and it underestimates the extent to which learning is hard. And yeah. idea, if you think you can make a few worksheets, sellotape them to desks and kids yes. go around and read them and talk about them yes. and therefore know them. Yes. That's not that's not the case. And that's particularly not the case for disadvantaged kids of course. Yeah. And if we're if we're teaching in ways that are ambiguous, that are unclear, it is your disadvantaged kids who are least able to resolve those ambiguities. There's there's the the, the memorable experience. And mm. um, there's a chapter in the in the research ed book um, all about this um, by Claire Seeley and um, she talks about the memorable experience being a, an episode mm. or is it actually something that involves much harder work a semantic memory mm. and I think back um, over my teaching career as a primary school teacher um, the number of times that um, we, we would think about starting off a topic with a memorable experience yeah. and when we got it to work 
it was because we were thinking about what is it that we actually want pupils to learn yeah. rather than what do they want to experience. And I think as mentors um, working with the skit, this is a really vital point that uh, uh, is so common for people to be coming into the first part of their training to become a teacher. Yeah. Uh, thinking about memorable experiences course, yeah. rather than memorable learning and how that's going to work through here. Um, and certainly there's, there's some interesting points um, that Claire mentions in her, in her chapter. And she talks about um, Dan Williams' yeah. um, t- term, memory is a residue of thought. Um, she talks about making sure that lessons give students the opportunity to think the things that we want them to remember rather than some extraneous thing. Mm. Um, I'm wondering whether you can think back over your own teaching career or things that you've, you've seen where people have not necessarily thought about what it is they want kids to learn about and have, have those experiences. I mean, yeah, I mean, yes. m- many times, isn't it? And, yes. and listen, it's not, a, first of all, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with memorable experiences, no. right? There's no. certainly not anything wrong with uh, having fun in school. Yes. And, you know, um, I think that's, you're not going to have a wall to wall kids thinking deeply and seriously about subject content, right? It's not, it's not how life is. No. Um, but yeah, I do completely recognise uh, what, what Claire Seavey's talking about there. Um, so, for example, when I think back to my own career, let's say we wanted kids to um, to learn about how to have a discussion, well, so the features of a good discussion in English. So I've done that in the past with drama, um, and I, we used to do an activity where uh, the kids, one of them would have to be the head teacher, one of them would be a naughty kid, one would be the kid's parent and one would be the the, the behaviour focused um, you know, SLT member yeah. and they'd have a meeting about this child's behaviour and we teach them all about the success criteria about how to have good discussion now of course these, these uh, activity was so funny, of course, <laughs> it was hilarious yes. kids absolutely loved it, I mean honestly I was, it was the, the, because kids really enjoy that, you know so fine. Yeah. What we couldn't have any confidence is that they'd leave that activity having any greater sense of how to run a kind of discussion. They did not learn the features of, of how to run a discussion. Uh, this is back in the old GCSE speaking yeah. and listening. Now, does does that mean we shouldn't have done it? Um, I'm cautiously we shouldn't have done that. Um, but what make, what it makes really important is what happens before and after exactly yes. the activity. Yes. If you are going to do something like that, um, because kids, as I say, it's that kind of hypersocial world. It's not you know, it's not deficit on their on their no. part that they get distracted by each other. We all do, don't we? I mean, we recognise the same teacher training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so so memorable experiences are, are okay, but but if you really want them to learn those features you're going to have to find a, a way to get them engaged seriously and deeply with it at some point. Absolutely. And I, I think it's it's a really key point to, to bear in mind that if you are, are thinking of a way of, a, a memorable way of getting kids to remember it, you've got to make sure that what they remember years later isn't the the gimmick side of it. Of course. It's, it's the actual learning learning side of it because yeah. um, you know, there, there, there are many, many examples of, uh, I mean, certainly I remember one uh, in in my primary days of teaching where uh, we we were doing various 
things in, in science that involved uh, marshmallows and bits of spaghetti to try and see if sure. could create structures to demonstrate how forces worked. Actually, if I'm completely honest with it, um, they all remember that they had marshmallows yes. and they all remember the bits of the spaghetti and how they could do things. But did they actually remember anything about the forces? Probably probably despite my teaching as opposed to because of what yeah. I was doing and I think that's that's a key kind of thing to go through. There's an opportunity cost isn't there yeah. in terms of what could they have learned, what, what yeah. progress could they have made in their understanding. Uh, uh, no that, that's quite right. If you're going to do a history lesson where, <laughs> what did I say once, sort of blind date um, Henry, yes. the, Henry VIII. Yes. Which didn't go well because the kid didn't know what blind date was. No, so you no, had to kind of explain that exactly. for ages first of exactly. all. Yes. Um, but you know they'll remember that but they that will not help them I, well I'd be very sceptical to the yeah. extent to which that and I'm assuming I remember doing a top trumps activity with, with history which was great for some things and really helped them to hone in on certain facts and things but when you then started to try and get things about how I'm going to win by having something that was higher yeah, right. how would I give how would I give a, a, a value to something yeah. you know all of those kind of things and it it's some, some things worked but some things certainly didn't work that's right um, but certainly at this at this kind of stage of uh, what's going on, if you if you're a mentor and you're interested in finding out more about research ed, or you're interested in finding out more about um, education myths, then I, I strongly advise you to have a, a little read of the research ed guide to education myths that's uh, come out. This one's edited by Craig Barton, um, and the series editor is Tom Bennett, who founded uh, Research Ed. And uh, Tom's also mentioned Daisy Christodoulou's Seven Myths About Education. And uh, both of these are in the Skip Library. Um, do get in touch with us if you want to have a look, or alternatively, we'll leave details um, with the show notes all about how you can get hold of copies for yourselves. But Tom, thank you so much this afternoon for coming in and uh, talking to us uh, about some different things here. And thank you also for all of the great work that you've been doing uh, with, this, with the Skip, not least uh, a wonderful session that I know social teachers enjoyed very much recently all about assessment and things to do with that as well so thanks Elizabeth. thank you thank you we hope you've enjoyed our second episode of the Oxford Teacher Training Podcast in episode three we look forward to welcoming our very own Sally Price to talk about her brand new book on well-being <laughs>